Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. Twice every weekday on Vision and on demand in the free Vision Christian Media app. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. I uh, would love to hear from you if you've got a reaction to the sorts of things that we are talking about today. We're going to turn our attention to northeast India, where out-of-control, rioting Hindus are attacking Christian communities. There's growing tensions in Manipur, a state in India's northeast, where rioting has left reportedly 70 dead, hundreds wounded, and more than 45,000 ethnic minority Christians displaced. Reports are that as many as up to 200 churches and 1,700 Christian-owned homes, along with thousands of cars, have been vandalised, looted and torched. Christian leaders are saying the people are deeply shaken and they are praying for peace. What is your reaction when you hear of these situations? We may feel a sense of helplessness, but we do have a special tool in our shed. It's called prayer. Well, our special guest today, Elizabeth Kendall, is a religious liberty analyst and advocate for the persecuted church. Elizabeth's a former principal researcher for the World Evangelical Alliance Religious Liberty Commission. She's also an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at Melbourne School of Theology. And you're able to, of course, get detailed understanding of what's going on in the persecuted church uh, at Elizabeth's website, elizabethkendall.com. Always our privilege to welcome Elizabeth to 2020. Elizabeth, great to talk to you once again. And thanks for having me back, Neil. Elizabeth, let's turn our attention to Manipur in India. I've given lots of details facts and figures and uh, from a couple of different sources there uh, what's your reaction you've been following this along this has actually started just a couple of weeks ago uh, yes it started on the 3rd of may although you could even say it started before that so the situation in india is that uh they have this system called uh where they list this what they call the scheduled tribes now these are also what they call backward tribes they are ethnic minorities they are marginalized they've suffered from centuries of discrimination and marginalization which leaves them very poor marginalized and their minority status is enough as well to keep them marginalized so the scheduled tribe status allows these tribes to get affirmative action. They get reserved places in government jobs, reserved places at universities, things like that. They also means that their, their lands are protected, their tribal lands are protected. No one from another tribe or from the Hindu major, majority can go in and buy their tribal lands. It's protected. Now, what's happened in Manipur... Uh, unlike mo- a lot of states in northeast India, Manipur is just a majority Hindu, 60% Hindu, and it's being run by the, the Hindu nationalist BJP party. And on the 19th of April, the Manipur High Court asked the state government to recommend to the federal government 
that the majority people, the, the, the Miti tribe who are 60% of the state and control politics, economics and everything, also be granted scheduled tribe status. And for the tribal, the Hills tribes peoples, who in this state are the Nagas and the Kukis, uh, they just thought, well, that will leave our our special status as meaningless. And and the big issue, though, is that it leaves their land vulnerable. If the majority Hindu tribe that has all the power has the same status, they may very well be able to push the Kukis off their tribal lands in the hills. Most of the Hindus live in the valleys and in the capital cities and the cities along the valley and the Kukis were really fearful of this, so they protested down in southwest Manipur, an area that's uh, virtually all Kuki, with lots and lots of Chin refugees from Burma who were the same people group. So they protested against this reclassification of the majority Miti tribe, and that was met with a violent response, really violent. So... And, and not, it spread to the capital really quickly. And, yeah, as you said, there's been about 100 churches or at least 100 churches burned and 1,700 homes, uh, numerous dead. It's been an absolute uh, disaster. Eventually, the, by, about the, by about the 12th of May, I think it was, the military had brought the situation under control. But they've only done this now by moving... Uh, about 40,000 or 45,000 Kuchi and Chin peoples into camps under military protection. So everyone is very tense and very worried about the future. And the the Kuki, the Hill Tribes peoples, are Christian peoples. This is why this is an issue for us. Elizabeth, the big picture here, and uh, we've had conversations about this before, the rising nationalism of the BJP, the Hindu party, and uh, what's called Hindutva. So when you've got this uh, special rights over land, is this, do you think, part of what's happened with the Hindutva, this nationalism, which uh, is trying to promote Hinduism and uh, to suppress any other activity. Is this part of what's the big picture? Oh, I have no doubt about it. So the media has largely reported it as, you know, an ethnic clash. But the victims are overwhelmingly the Christians the tr- the, who are the tribal minorities, the Hill Tribes people. And not only that, it became a religious clash really quickly. So even down in the, the, the valley, in the Imphal Valley through Manipur, where the, most of the Hindu, Hindus live, the churches belonging to the Miti Christians who are converts from Hinduism, they were burned as well. So it became a religious clash. The Christians and the tribal say, oh, the police did nothing to help us. And there are many voices questioning whether the Hindu nationalist government maybe even fed this bushfire. I wonder if they ignited it. I, I really wonder because there's another element here and this is where it gets even a little bit more complicated. Manipur borders Chin State in Burma where the Burmese junta is running air raids against the Chin 
who are uh, who are the same people group. Depend, it's one people group depending on what country you live in. The Chin and the Kuki and the Mizo, and and the Chin are a peop, Christian people group, and they the the Buddhist Burmese junta is bombing them, and it's it's almost like a genocidal campaign. So about ten thousand Chin have come over the border into southern Manipur, and India is not a signatory to the UN's. Uh, refugee convention, all right? And what the Manipur state government, which is a Hindu nationalist state government, has said is that they are determined to drive all the, they call them illegal immigrants, they're meaning Chin refugees, out of Manipur. So I even have to wonder if, if the BJP government was ready to go uh, with this sort of, like a, a sweep of, of the people. They now have 45 Chin and Kuki who are the, uh, people in camps and I think they're going to drive a whole lot of Chin back into Burma very quickly. Let me just ask you about another significant complication in all of this in our conversation because as you talk about Burma, the Burmese junta and uh, the fleeing of those 10,000 Chin into southern Manipur, which is the northeast state there of India. The Burmese junta, that's a Buddhist uh, religious uh, organisation, or at least the people who are a part of that are driven by Buddhism. So if you've got Buddhists chasing Christians out, and then you've got this massacre happening uh, when they come into the Hindu state. Is there something significant in talking about those religious differences? Well, it's what happens when you get religious nationalism. So, um, you know, India didn't used to have this sort of persecution. Back before Hindu, the rise of Hindu nationalism, uh, you know, there was always tensions. You know, no one likes it if a family member converts to another religion that makes you feel uncomfortable. But the sort of persecution we're seeing now is directly linked to Hindu nationalism, which is a fascist ideology. It says that India is for Hindus. It says India is Hindustan uh, and its people are of the Hindu race. And everyone should therefore be a Hindu and accept that India is, is their motherland and their holy land. And what that does is it creates a religious apartheid and Christians become, you know, like the enemy. They, they become the enemy. The same is, has happened in Burma or Myanmar where the junta is actually a Buddhist nationalist junta. They promote Buddhist nationalism. They view all the, the people, the, the tribes around the, the centre, around the periphery as lesser and it sets up again a sort of a religious, an ethno-religious apartheid where, where everything is, comes in for the Burmese Buddhists and everyone else suffers. So India's done the same except with Hindu nationalism. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision. Well, significant insight today on what Christian persecution looks like in modern times like in the last week or two, as we get a focus on the northeast Indian state of Manipur 
you might like to call in and you can be a part of our conversation, even if it's a question, a comment, might even be a critique for our conversation. That's welcome to our special guest is Elizabeth Kendall, a religious liberty analyst and advocate for the persecuted church. Uh, Elizabeth will take another call in just a few moments, but there's a third dimension and that is Bangladesh. And while we've been talking about the Indian Hindus in Manipur and the Buddhist Janta coming from Myanmar, uh, there's also what's going on in Bangladesh. And that actually brings in the Islamists. Give us your insights here into what's happening very quickly in Bangladesh. Well, in the far east of Bangladesh is a region known as the Chittagong Hill Tracts. This is the only mountainous region in Bangladesh. It should never have been uh, awarded to Bangladesh when the British were carving up, you know, the subcontinent because the people are not Bengalis and they are not Muslims. They are hill tribes peoples. They are mostly Buddhists and Christians. They're the same. The Christians are the same people group. They are the Kuki, Mizo, Chin Christians. And uh, what's been happening in um, Bangladesh is that there's a really strong movement of Bengali Muslims to drive uh, these uh, Christians really out of the Chittagong hill tracks. So they've been flooding into northeast India, mostly into Mizoram, the state directly south of Manipur. Mizoram is is 95% estimated Christian and ethnic Mizo or Kuki Mizo Chin. So if you if you think of what to think of the the Kuki people or the Kuki Mizoin people, they're a bit like, say, the Kurds, a stateless people that are spread across many countries. And these hill tribes, they're a Sino-Tibetan people that came in contact with the gospel uh, in the just the twentieth century, <laughs> became Christian, but they're spread over eastern Bangladesh, northeast India and uh, Western Burma, and they're suffering uh, everywhere except in Mizoram. They are suffering. We're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. You might have your own reaction. You might have a comment. You might have your own insight to offer. I'd love to hear from someone who's coming from perhaps an Indian background or maybe you're coming from a Burmese background in Myanmar. Uh, you might have your own thoughts on what's going on in that region now, even as you're hearing of these developments. So one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Let's take a call from Steve in Bray Park in Queensland. Hi, Steve. Welcome. Hello. Uh, I'm glad you guys have come across this issue finally. Uh, we, the, the, the popular media like to tell us oh, China's a danger, and we've actually allied with India in the Quad under the American guidance and we're supposed to help India and form a ring around China and that's the popular narrative. But uh, if you go to any Indian shops, you'll notice there's newspapers everywhere and there's four Indian newspapers available in Brisbane in English. They come out monthly and if you flip through them, they're instructions to the local Indian community. Now, the BJP has a long history. They go back to the RSS uh, do you remember Gandhi was uh, a, a popular man in India? He was assassinated by a member of the RSS, which predates the BJP. They simply, that's the political wing of the RSS. Uh, a, a fellow called Chandra Bose during World War II 
was in Hitler's Germany and he formed an SS Legion, the Indian Legion. But Hitler wouldn't give them any guns. So he flew to Japan and he formed a group called the Indian National Army and he recruited 40,000 Indian troops. They fought against the British Indian Army in Burma and at the end of the war, the British were going to execute three of the generals and it caused an uprising that the British said, well, we better get out of India because Chandra Bose now has a statue in the Indian Parliament. He's a national hero. There's also a statue of the assassin of Gandhi been put up by the BJP in the Indian Parliament. So these right-wing Hindus have been at it for a long time what we don't recognise is that during the war, the British uh, decided they'd better leave India, not because of Gandhi and his pacifists. That's a bit of a myth. It's because of Chandra Bose and his hundreds of thousands of armed militants. And they were carrying out assassinations and bombings, just like they did in Northern Ireland, and they got the Irish independence. Now, if we look at the facts that are going on at the moment, uh, Hindus are coming in across Australia, and I read in the Old Testament, you're not to have any idols. God will curse any land that builds idols. And I keep hearing preachers say, oh, that means money. That means ambition. No, <laughs> I go to my local Hindu temple and it's full of idols. So we're actually allowing these people to mock our God and we do nothing about it. Uh, if you look Steve, at, let uh, me just cut in here because uh, there's an awful lot you've got to say and I think really valuable points that you're making. Let's get a comment from Elizabeth Kendall on some of the things that you're sharing here because uh, it sounds to me like relevant uh, insight uh, from history. And uh, your thoughts here, Elizabeth? Yes, this is really, uh, really important. So I think one of the big problems that we have in modern Australia well, we'll just talk about Australia, is we have a high degree of illiteracy when it comes to history. Um, and and uh, most, most even of our politicians have a high degree of illiteracy when it comes to history and when it comes to religion. So they seem to think that all re religion is uh, harmless, except for Christianity, of course, which they hate. But um, And they just don't really know anything about like the history of Hindu nationalism in India, the uh, the ideology of Vidhi Sabakar, the father of Hindutva. Um, I, the one thing, this will interest you, Steve, one thing that really interests me is the fact that Vidhi Sabakar, who, who wrote the treatise on Hindutva, oh, somewhere uh, around about 1910, I think it was, he was in jail and he was looking for a way to rally Hindus against the British and he was in jail, and even though he hated the caliphate Muslims that he was imprisoned with, I think he was greatly, greatly influenced by their thinking because Hindutva has a lot in common with radical Islam in the way it creates this religious apartheid. And Christians become essentially like dhimmis, like second-class citizens. Now, the thing that I get especially upset with today is that you repeatedly hear, oh, you know, India is this rising tiger, you know, they are the world's largest democracy, blah, 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 blah. And people are trying to jump on board, but it's, it's a lie. It is just an outright lie. It is all about money and geopolitics and all the human rights abuses. The fascist element of the BJP government is ignored 
um, the human rights, the persecutions, the, the massacre of Muslims in Gujarat and the massacres of Christians all over the country is just ignored um, for the sake of getting India as a market and having them geostrategically as a counterbalance to China. And so everything else is downplayed. And I've, I've written, uh, would have been in 2019 at the last elections, there was a wonderful book by an Indian whistleblower called How to Win an Indian Election. And it shows how the BJP, the Bharatiya Janata Party, uh, used thousands upon thousands of foot soldiers to run this um, really, really high-tech campaign. You, ballot stuffing, I mean, that's yesterday's way to win an election. That's, that's yesterday's fraud. The Indian government... Uh, they used data analytics and they micro-targeted every single Indian through mostly like WhatsApp groups and all sorts of uh, things they could get to them on their phone, so the most effective propaganda you can imagine. And this whistleblower who was working on this campaign and realised how bad it was, he said, the BJP is creating an enemy for every person and then offering themselves as the solution. And they actually reversed their fortunes in 2019. They thought they would be forced back into a coalition, but they actually increased their numbers. And they did it through controlling the narrative. That's all you have to do if you want to win an election now. India is not what I would call a democracy. India is a human rights abusing Hindu nationalist, I keep wanting to say fascist state where Christians are severely persecuted uh, and treated as second-class citizens, and we should not be overlooking that in our politics. Steve, we've got you still uh, interesting. You mentioned uh, here we are as Australia aligned with the Quad. Uh, India is one of those four nations in the Quad. Um, something certainly to be mindful of. Steve, did you have a last quick comment well, uh, I, I'm not sure how many listeners will believe this, but we now know that uh, England, Britain, has an, an Indian Prime Minister. Scotland uh, now has a, an Indian Chief Minister. Uh, relatives of mine come from Mauritius. Now, Mauritius was uh, mostly African slaves, freed slaves. It was French. They, the British brought in indentured servants from India starting in 1834, that country is now 90% Indian. Uh, places like uh, Trinidad, I've got friends living there, They're, they brought in indentured servants, they're now 50% Indian. Uh, the, under the current BJP government, and you'll read this if you get the local Indian papers, there's India Times, uh, Indus Age, etc. And most of them are funded by state government ads. And there's articles about all the state ministers they've had at their celebrations and their... So they brought out an article recently. Steve, I'm going to have to cut in because I've got to go to news. Um, we will... Just one uh, last thing. The Indians have a, a system where they call anyone who's born in India or has heritage from India PIOs, people of Indian origin. And their goal is to have them in every parliament in Australia. They don't care what party they're from because they know that they will have loyalty to their race above okay. party loyalty. Uh, Steve, very good insight. China is the same. Uh, we'll continue our conversation after Vision National News. Elizabeth, before we move any further, 
I wonder if you've got a thought or two in one of the people groups we've been talking about, the Kuki Miso Chen, because I think you mentioned that uh, just on a hundred years ago, these were completely non-Christian. Now they are an entirely Christian people. Uh, thoughts here about that, those sorts of uh, histories and the difference that this evangelism world mission makes in, in different nations? Yeah, well, the, the conversion of the Kuki, Mizo, Chin people, right? A, a Tibetan people that have migrated down from the Himalayas and the Tibet, down through the mountains, you know, between northeast India and Burma and right down uh, into the Chittagong Hill Tracks. Uh, the conversion of these people is one of the great missionary stories uh, of all time, just like the conversion of the the Papuans in in West Papua and and uh, and other great stories. So the situation was: you have the British in India, right? The British Raj, and uh, the British. Uh, basically didn't go right up into the hills of northeast India. They mainly were in the the valleys and they were farming there. And one of the problems that they had in the around the 1860s and 1870s and maybe earlier was that the, the kooky warriors would come down and it sounds like, you know, the movies with the Red Indians or something, they'd come down and they'd raid the villages in the, in the valleys. And they'd kill people and they'd loot everything. They'd loot harvests and they'd abduct people and they'd, you know, cut people's heads off and everything. And it got really too much for the British. It was becoming really uh, difficult. And then in 1971, a raid by uh, Mizo tribes, which is the same tribe, but they're from Mizoram, the state of Mizoram, but they're the same people, the Kuki Mizo Chin, they came down into where uh, the British were farming and a Scottish tea planter was killed. He was shot and then macheted and his six-year-old daughter was abducted uh, and uh, she was taken off into the hills by these Mizo tribesmen. So the British decided that they would uh, launch a raid up into the Lushai Hills which is this, the area that we're considering when we think of Mizoram, Manipur, and Nagaland. So they were going to raid, they were going to go back in a punitive expedition to rescue the people who'd been abducted, and to try and reason with the Kuki warriors that they should not pick a fight with the British Empire, right? And they did that. They went up. They uh, negotiated. They rescued all the people, including this little six-year-old girl. And there was peace for about 10 years, and then it all starts again. So the British go back. And what the British did was they they annexed all those hills into their region. And what that did was it opened the area up for Christian missionaries, right? So the first – oh, where have I written it? The first Christian – the first Christians – the first – Mesos to become Christians was in about, I think, 1907, roughly. So it's only about 100 years since the Meso heard the gospel and the, Chi, the Kuki Chico Mi, Chin people who were busy killing people and raiding and looting and abducting became Christians and they are now virtually and exclusively Christian people. And uh, it's wonderful. And, you know, I just think, 
it is a disgrace that Britain would ignore a people who are the legacy of British missionaries who came to faith because of the opportunities provided by British colonisation and I think they're essentially an, an ignored people that most people don't even know exist and the church must care about them. The church should love them and uh, care about them. I think we could all be in awe of those missionaries who sacrifice all sorts of things they could do in their life to go and live amongst a uh, people group. That's uh, Elizabeth's dog in the background, don't mind uh, that one. Uh, but, uh, but those missionaries who would uh, really sacrifice all else to go and take the gospel into a people group, and we might not even be very familiar with the names of some of these tribes and some of them even hard to pronounce, but... This is the sort of result you get when a whole people group turns to Christ. Hey, I've got a whole bunch of calls coming through, Elizabeth. Let's uh, let's uh, take calls quickly and we might just get some quick responses, but see if we can get through these. Eve is in the Darling Downs in Queensland. Eve, welcome along. Hi, how are you going? Good, Eve. What are your thoughts? Um, just sort of uh, something to throw in there. Um, with you know, Australia being founded on Christianity and um, with India um, being um, active with uh, prosecuting Christians. Um, what is Elizabeth's um, thoughts on the uh, a lot of the fuel stations and small um, groceries being um, bought out by Indians? Uh, Elizabeth, her thoughts on imports? Look, you know, my issue is really with um, persecution and freedom, and I think our government has to really pressure the Indian government to do something about the persecution. They have to challenge them on Hindu nationalism. So I'm not opposed to Indians. Uh, uh, Indians are beautiful people. Uh, a lot of Indians have no real understanding of what Hindu nationalism is doing to their country and uh, what it is doing to the Christians in their country. A lot of Indians don't understand their own history even, that India was filled with tribes, that, um, that the gospel came to India 2,000 years ago. Uh, uh, you know, our tradition has it that the Apostle Thomas brought the gospel to India and is buried there. And all through South India there are churches dedicated to the Apostle Thomas. And then there was a, a later inflow of, of, of uh, Aryans, Persians, and they basically form what is the high caste Brahmin, much more fair-skinned people. So there's a real racial element to it. And, but the thing is, you see, we need to be able to look at an Indian person and see them as a human being created in the image of God and the church needs to take an interest in the Indians who are coming into Australia in exactly the same way as we take an interest in the Chinese who are coming into Australia. They might even they might come here because the government is overlooking the fact that they are peddling Indian influence or peddling Chinese Communist Party influence. And you know, it's not even it's not even Indian influence, it's BJP influence. It's the Bharatiya Janata Party, the Hindu Nationalist Party, that is the problem. And uh, our government needs to tackle that. You know, there was a really big um, 
beautiful Anglican church not far from where I live, actually, in the Dandenong Ranges, that like a lot of churches around here, uh, became empty. <laughs> and not all that long ago, it was sold off to, uh, to um, uh, Indian Hindus and it is now the largest temple to Ganesh in the Southern Hemisphere. So these sorts of things bother me. The Anglican Church did that. The Anglican Church made that sale. Um, to, to what degree are we reaching out to our Indian neighbours and recognising them for who they are? I have, I have an Indian daughter-in-law and she and her family are some of the most beautiful people I have ever, ever met. Uh, Indian Christians are extraordinary um, so I think we have to be really careful that we don't just shut the door on Indians. We have to make sure that we know that the problem is Hindu nationalism and the government, ha our government in Australia has to address that. They should take it up with the Indian government and not let them get away with it. Well, some pressure perhaps needs to be applied, and this is at a higher level diplomacy uh, where these sorts of things happen, so it's Certainly a conversation today that says, don't boycott your local Indian restaurant. In fact, uh, this may be an opportunity for you to connect with Indians who are running your favourite Indian restaurant. Hey, Eve, thank you so much for your call. 1-800-316-316. We'll try and get through these calls. Let's hear from Larry in Renmark, South Australia. Hi, Larry. Welcome. Hello. Um, I just want to remind everyone that this world, because of sin, must end. Okay, as a big blanket statement, it could be theological, it could be to do with uh, what is coming in times ahead. Elizabeth, uh, a very quick thought for Larry. Oh, yes, well we, well, we know this. We know that God is going to make all things new, new heaven, new earth, sin will be gone, the curse will be gone and a new age will be ushered in. And we also know that the problems we have in this world are all because of sin. And people have different views of how this is all going to pan out. Now, my view regarding the growth of the gospel in the world is a very positive one. I believe it's a whole of Bible view. It's the Puritan view. It's the view of the church, actually, right up until maybe the 19th century when some views started to change. And that is that the church, that Christ will build his church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and that we will see it grow. We've already seen it grow from a little band of fishermen on the shores of Galilee to all over the, much of the world. And we are seeing today a real movement of God throughout the Muslim world. Many people believe, I believe, that the African church is going to play a role in the re-evangelization of the UK and Western Europe, that China is going to play, a, Chinese Christians, the Chinese church will play a role in bringing the gospel right back, all the way back along the new Silk Road, back to Jerusalem. And I believe that the earth will be filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's as we support mission. It's as we reach out to our non-Christian neighbours and it's as we pray and pray and pray. We pray for the lost 
and we pray for the persecuted church because they are the missionaries on the front line and even behind the front line on the en- behind enemy territory as we pray for the persecuted church we also help advance the kingdom of god in some of the darkest places of the world and we will see light break through i have no doubt about that i want to thank larry for that call and interestingly isn't it so uh, when we talk about our view of what is coming uh, the end times uh, there are all sorts of different positions there and i guess you've got to be a little bit cautious that the one you choose doesn't take your eyes off what that Great Commission is, to go into all the world and preach the good news, making disciples of nation. There is a mission activity that should not stop, according to what we think about what might be coming. Larry, thank you so much for your call. Let's take another one. James is in Kyabram in Victoria. Hi, James. Welcome. Hey, Neil. How you doing? Very good. What are your yeah, thoughts? I'm... We are very uh, happy with the ideas of the prayer. I've got two prayer points. One of them is uh, the, the mention of Graham Haynes um, and the movie that he was in about how they burnt him and his two sons in the van in 1999. Yeah. Um, it was done by an extremist group. Uh, I know the name, but I don't like speaking them out. But the other thing uh, was that I have a friend, uh, Pastor Abraham, who came over from India just in the last month and... Uh, he hadn't been over for four years because of COVID, but he's saying he's got like 10,000 pastors under him and they've set up so many churches and so many orphanages and what they're doing is they're not allowing them to renew their licenses. So they need their, they've got these churches sitting there and there's no one attending because they won't, they'd arrest them, they won't allow them to carry on with the normal proceedings. Uh, so that's a prayer point. And in regards to the a verse to pray that I believe is Isaiah 32, 17 and 18. I won't tell you it off by heart. But if anyone was interested in praying, this is what the, the righteous should be receiving. They should be receiving the, the peace and the comfort from God. And it goes into more detail than that. If you, if you look at those two verses, Isaiah 32, uh, 17 and 18. Um, and I uh, yeah, just really like the idea that you're praying because it brings me to tears. It brings me to tears to hear what is going on with the people in India. I've loved Indians all my life. And I thank, you for my, thank God for my mother, although she's not alive. She influenced me, influenced me with food from all cultures. Now, Indian food was appreciated, Chinese food, all of those foods. So thank you to everybody who's praying for India. I really uh, think it's a great thing to emphasize. So thank you for that, Wonderful. Neil. Wonderful. Thank you. To, yeah. James, thank you thank so you much for your call. And uh, for listeners, uh, even as James says, that was Graham Staines. Uh, he's making a reference to there. And uh, really, really powerful. That verse that uh, you're making a referral to, to Isaiah 32, 17 and 18, says the fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. Uh, Elizabeth, a thought or two there for, for James briefly. Oh, what what uh, uh, fantastic uh, verses to be praying for the Christians of India. I really, really appreciate uh, your call. Now, there's a, I have a friend actually in Brisbane. I'll have to get, uh, I'll have to get Neil in contact with him, a former Presbyterian minister who now runs, I think it's called the um, Indian Reformed Fellowship, and he's been pastor. He's been training pastors in India. Spends has spent quite a lot of time in northeast India. And uh, they are an absolutely beautiful Christian people. 
who want to live in peace and uh, and just just honor the Lord and worship the Lord, and they are suffering. And one thing that's really interesting, you know, about the uh, the Chin in Burma, especially, but really all the Kuki Miso Chin people, and and the Miso in India, is they are known for their missionary spirit. You will find Chin and Miso missionaries all across India. I, I wrote a couple of years ago, I think, on a on a Miso missionary who was being persecuted in Kashmir, witnessing to Muslim, Muslims. And I know that Chin missionaries are all over Burma, in every state in, and from the, everywhere. They are missionaries at heart. So there is a really intense spiritual warfare element to this persecution of a Christian missionary people and they've been Christians for a hundred years. Now I'm trying to think where I read this quote and I'll have to go and find it. And the, um, uh, so, uh, it was, I'm sure it was a Meso Christian who said they were being persecuted. He'd been arrested and he said, um, we have, you have, we have Jesus in our blood. Now you will not be able to drag it out. Um, these are people that governments are, turning a blind eye to because it's more valuable to, you know, to, to cuddle up to India economically and geopolitically, geostrategically. But they must not be forgotten. We must put them on our hearts. We must pray for them and we will pray that God will bring peace to them. I, I love those verses. Thank you very much for that, James. Uh, James in Kyabram, thank you so much for your call and uh, for listeners, uh Jot that down, Isaiah 32, verses 17 and 18. Just a wonderful insight from James. Hey, time is running out for our conversation. Elizabeth, uh, I'm glad we've talked about how you might pray. And uh, James just shed some beautiful light there. But the next thing to say is, well, how do I do something from where I'm sitting right now? Because we can feel very helpless about a situation like this. Uh, there are some wonderful organisations like Open Doors or Voice of the Martyrs or Barnabas Aid. I'm not sure whether all or any of those are actually at work in the places we're talking about today. Uh, but there might be some Christian groups that are Indian-based uh, that listeners might know. Is this a way, Elizabeth, that you can connect with your local Indian community and perhaps even support what they might be doing by way of fundraising? What are your thoughts here for how we actually help for uh, these these situations as we're talking about them? Yes, I think you keep your ear to the ground. Is there an Indian uh, Christian fellowship uh, in your area? I mean, a lot of Indian Christians... Uh, you really blend in well to Aussie churches because they speak English. So it's not, they don't tend to separate as much as other cultures do that need, need language uh, issues. Um, yes, I mentioned to you it, um, the Indian Reformed Fellowship, Indian Reformed Fellowship it is of Australia. They're Brisbane based and I'll put you onto them. Uh, and there are missionary organisations that do focus on India um, there's the Dalit network, but I don't think they're working much in northeast India. I'm not sure, but it's not hard to find out if you if you have a look. But Open Doors and Voice of the Martyrs, I know that they're both uh, will be raising money for Manipur. They're both written ex extensively on the on the 
pogroms and the rioting. So, and and just quickly as we do, uh, just bring some loose ends together. Uh, when we talk about seventy Christians now have been killed, uh, all of those other issues around hundreds of churches uh, destroyed. Um, when we talk about a pogrom, sometimes, Elizabeth, uh, pogroms, these sorts of things, they need some sort of explanation too. But a pogrom is a little bit more like an organized massacre, isn't it? Uh, but things could develop uh, significantly, particularly if it's BJP sponsored because BJP is across India. Uh, what are your uh, predictions or let's not even say predictions, but fears for what could come more broadly uh, given what's happened in Manipur? Well, yeah, a pogrom is really just a riot that's out of control and often is organised and, and it can advance because of impunity. No one's going to stop them. You know, the police will often stand back and it can just go. So everything gets burned, it gets looted. There are, there are scenes from uh, uh, Global Christians Relief, I think it was is the name of the organisation, had footage of streets in um, Manipur in, in the southwest hills area where the rioting started. Just every single car down the street, a shell, burned out shell, shops destroyed, everything. So a pogrom is just a riot that is let, let go. My, what the illustration I tend to use is the bushfire. So I believe that the Hindu nationalist Bharatiya Janata Party, wherever it is in power, and Hindu and the and the Hindu nationalists dominate. So that's not every state, but where they are in power and they dominate, they have created a tinderbox. It is ready to blow. We've seen the we've seen the the massacres in Gujarat. About two thousand Muslims killed in two thousand and two. Massacres and pogroms in Orissa, now known as Odisha, in two thousand and eight. Just in January this year, we saw uh, thousands or over a thousand, I think, Christians driven from Bastar district in Chhattisgarh just driven out and having to be housed in sporting stadiums in, in the North Indian tribal belt. It's a, a tinderbox. And so all you need is a spark. And if there's no firemen around because the police hate Christians too, then you end up with a raging bushfire in absolutely no time. So for, for about 20 years, actually, I have been regularly describing India as pre-genocidal. I really believe... Many parts of India are tinderbox ready to blow and Christians can be, like they have in Manipur, suffer immensely just in the blink of an eye. Well, there's a challenge to be in prayer and some will feel closer to India than others. But the encouragement there is to be in prayer. You say, how do I pray? How do I get more detail about what's going on in India? Well, there is an article that Elizabeth has on her website, elizabethkendall.com, elizabethkendall.com, that explains some of the background and some of the challenges that are going on now in Manipur and in some of these other surrounding states. So let me point listeners, elizabethkendall.com, while you're there, you might like to check out Elizabeth's got a couple of books. Turn Back the Battle, Isaiah Speaks to Christians Today, and also After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. And you can find all sorts of very deep and great information to inform you about the persecuted church 
And while you're there, connect with Elizabeth personally. And you might even like to make some form of donation because uh, Elizabeth uh, just relies on uh, those who are making a gift as well. So elizabethkendall.com. Elizabeth, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your heart with us today on 2020. And thank you for having me again, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.